Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Suspects, Beatles and the Beach Boys, Queen, unfortunately, well, for me. Ooh, no. Well, the one, yes, the, one, the one with the big metal monster on it, I seem to remember, because I liked it. News it of the it. World? No, not News of the World. What's the one with the big metal monster on it? was a compilation, maybe. Uh, no, My parents anyway. did compilations. Right. Know. Oh, right. Uh, so, yeah. It had did a, it have a terrible effect on you, the Queen record, from which you've never f- made a full recovery? Uh, no, I just, I just don't understand Queen. They're kind of. They always seem to be a joke band to me, but then suddenly they've reclaimed like all these bands have done over the past few years, and they're cool again. And I suppose so. I, suppose I don't so. remember. Did your parents take them seriously? Though? Did they say no, hush, I think, children? No, my my dad liked "We Will Rock You." That was kind of the thinking behind it. When sober or when drunk? Surely you have to be drunk to like we, we will. Oh, you yeah, so. you've got to be. You're on thin ice oh, here, Mark. We will. We will. We will. We will. That's true. Mm-hmm. You've got to have a bit of glint in your eye, Absolutely. haven't you? Because you, where are you talk, talking about this the other day in the office, weren't you? Because Mossman, you know, uh, yields to no one in our admiration of, of, of Queen. Queen. I know, which is um, what stalked Roger Taylor. You know w- that story. Go on. When she was 12, Kate Mossman, uh, reviews editor of The Word, uh, encouraged her parents, absolutely true, by the way, encouraged her parents to buy... Uh, a small holiday flat in a remote Cornish town, the name of which I can't reveal because obviously it's the remote Cornish town, which, which uh, the drummer of Queen also has a, a fairly substantial <laughs> holiday flat, in fact, a giant pile. And she, that, they, she was so keen to be closer to the concept of Queen that they did actually do that. And, am I right? Yeah, you're right, yeah. And one, the, on her Were first afternoon, age yes. 12, with her brother, age 14, staying in this uh, seaside venue in Cornwall, she watching, and probably within binocular distance, in fact, of, of Chateau Taylor, she noticed that the drummer of Queen was setting out to the local cinema, and she perceived him and sat in the seat behind him, not watching the film, but watching just the back of his quite substantial head. She'll, she'll be thrilled that you've told this. God! 
Please never tell her that this, I've said this. We'll yeah, she won't hear it, don't worry. Her. She won't know, will she? No one will let her. Please, nobody let her know. Well, she will give her the right, the right of reply. And, yeah. you know, if she if she's, you know, takes issue with any element of this, she can come on a podcast can, next week right. and, and correct it. But it was Roger them. Taylor rather than rather Taylor. than Freddie Mercury or um Fred may have turned his up by then, you see, because that happened a long time ago. Uh, so so, so Kate's a kind of post-Freddie uh, fan of Queen. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, she's yeah. It is yeah. absolutely astonishing. Astonishing. <laughs> Christian, we've got to get back to your, your records. <laughs> oh, no, it's fine. I mean, it's I only, That's been very, very I only mentioned it because, as a kid, the records that stick in my mind are the ones with the great covers, and that, there was an ELO record with the big spaceship. Yes, and, yes. And this Queen a new record, world record. Yeah. And this Queen record with the Tin Monster. And a uh, Pink Floyd compilation, oh, which had been around in the 80s. Yeah, with the man or a woman with lots of... Wires coming oh, out. Oh, yes. Remember that? I did. So all these covers yeah, kind of either freaked me out or inspired me to think that music was about spaceships and tin monsters. Oh, I see. And that was why I remember I mean, the other reason why I remember those records are not anything more kind of esoteric is my dad always claims that his wonderful vinyl collection was destroyed when he tried to make beer. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Come on, we need to know about this. It could be an apocryphal story, but you know, my dad claims to have had lots of brilliant 45s of Kinks and Stones and Jimi Hendrix and whatever, and they were destroyed when he tried to make beer and it exploded on his records and they couldn't be salvaged. So he wasn't using the records as an element in the the making of You would have your vinyl. I thought I should see a huge plastic. Because people used to do, horribly. People, <laughs> you remember how they used, everyone made beers. People stuff, used so. to do odd things with records. Though, yeah. don't they? You remember lampshades and things like that made out of records? Oh, right, that's true. <laughs> Ashtrays. But, it, but just going back, if if you pour beer on a record or a final record, does it ever recover? It's a good well, point. Well, I've done it many times. Does it just get covered in fluff and become sugar? Isn't it? I think I think that was the claim. Yeah. He may not have had this amazing record collection. It was just a way oh, of excusing see, the fact. Oh, it, it's a fact. What happened was, you said to him one day, Dad, you are literally uncool. You've only got compilations. All my yes. other friends, Dad, these are really time, got amazing yeah. records yeah, yeah, yeah. by Dr. Strangely Strange. I just got to mention them. There's <laughs> <laughs> a terrible tick. joke to various people who email me. Tick. I've said it now. And, uh, and he obviously was so embarrassed about that and realised that he'd been, you know, Caught back to rights, really. Well, to invent a fiction whereby the world's most valuable collection of forty fives. I'll, I'll, I'll have to save his beer save his reputation here because he was friends with uh, a guy called Mike Gill. He was his, he was his best friend who became Rod Stewart's manager oh. and also worked on a lot of teen magazines. I don't know whether you oh. know the name. Oh, yeah, vague, the name vaguely. Well, wow. late sixties worked on a lot of teen magazines, oh, yeah. so got a lot of records, and I think some of them went my dad's way. So I think he did. He, yeah, did have he, he did have it. He did have it. He was in the middle of the scene in the late 60s, yeah. going to the marquee and so forth. So right. I have to say his reputation in, his, in case he is. He's yes. probably cooler than all of us put together. <laughs> yeah. Might he be listening to this? If I tell him that I'm on it, I'm sure he will. Oh, okay. <laughs> Listen to it proudly, in so, a puzzled fashion. Yeah. Stan, if you are listening, <laughs> yes. what we said is like Adam Partridge. <laughs> do, you remember, do you remember the Adam Partridge episode? <laughs> There's the woman on there whose father is a criminal. Do you remember that one? Oh, the uncle. The uncle, that's yeah, right. Yeah, the Barbara Windsor. Yeah. Uh, there's nice character. There's nice. And there's Uncle Derek. Do <laughs> you remember that? Just, if you are listening... Yes. Can, I, can I just say something about Alan Partridge? Because I've actually been listening to those recently. Because my radio they broke at home. And thing. so, while shaving, and I can recommend this to anybody, if you've got an iPad, you yeah. can get the... On BBC Seven, 
you can listen to the original Alan Partridges, and they work perfectly while shaving. I can think of no better accompaniment. Get an app that can shave for you as well. <laughs> shaving. And I was listening to those. A, boy, they're funny. Incredibly funny. And uh, B, he's never been funny since. No, well, well never funnier. Not, he's funnier. never been funnier since. And C, do you know how long ago that's are? It would have been at least 10 years ago. It's 20 years ago. <laughs> I think it's 19 yeah, or 20. Yeah. I was amazed. And because I'd watched the trip not long ago, the you know the Rob Brydon, Steve Coogan thing about them going round the hotels, you know the, the BBC series that was on before Christmas, and it's very much about I can't be as funny as that, yeah. isn't it? You know, mm. That's the kind of the undertone of, of that thing. It's very. I, I was given uh, yeah, it would have been about probably about seventeen, eighteen years ago as a Christmas present a cassette from my eldest son Tom, and his. He, with his little unbroken voice, had recorded an impersonation of Alan Partridge <laughs> interviewing all my favourite people as my Christmas present. <laughs> so he was a little tiny squeaky Alan Partridge saying, Hello, Paul McCartney. Like, you know, oh, and he did this whole thing really... for me, for gosh, I've still got, of course. It's absolutely fantastic. That's how big Alan Partridge was. So tell me, is Tom listening to this no, podcast? No, please Boy, don't. He, he would, would be, be so upset. <laughs> oh, I'm really, I put my oh, foot in To the official business of the podcast, if we have such a thing. Christian, mm. you wrote. A very really good guest column in the current issue of Word, which is about an issue that needed addressing, which is why don't pop singers sing in a way that we can understand the words? Yeah. Fair? Yeah. Has this, been a, has this been an obsession of yours for a long time? Well, not really. It's just what sparked it off was, was James Blake's album, which I love, and he's brilliant, but he mumbles the entire way through it, which is obviously part of his deal... He's using his voice as an instrument, that, that old chestnut. But it did make me think, he's obviously quite well-spoken. He seems to be quite a nice chap. <laughs> and halfway through uh, Limit to Your Love, he says, waterfall. <laughs> <laughs> quite deliberately says waterfall. That's and not, not waterfall. the way he was brought up. <laughs> That's not the way he was brought up. And I thought, why is he doing it? Well, obviously he's doing this because he's nominally in the dubstep genre, which is an urban music thing, which means if you're posh, middle class, you can't really get away with it, despite the fact that Burial, you know, the champion of dubstep is posh and middle class as well. <laughs> um, so I thought, well, he's probably, yeah, he's doing a kind of thing about, you know, I'm not that posh, really, which is fine. I, the whole debate about poshness in pop, we know, has been yeah. raging for years. But also, I thought, well, the rest of the album, you know, he smothers his voice in effects, and you can't hear what he's saying, and maybe he's just not really that keen on writing lyrics and singing and so forth. And I thought, well, this is kind of the case with a lot of singers these days, especially the young singers. Um, it seems to be that they are almost embarrassed by being... Like who? Give us some examples. Well, I was thinking about it, it, even people like Adele, who seems to be a, you know, a good pop belter in the tradition of soul singers of the past, but actually, again, doesn't really enunciate very well and again is what 21 um people like ellie goulding that those kinds of female pop so pop, by enunciate do you mean that they're not pronouncing things the way that they would normally if they spoke or they're just deliberately singing their words in a way that makes it hard to discern them yeah meaning? i think a lot of them are doing it as an effect as a kind of as i said in the column it seems to be that they're drawing from a soul tradition yes. mostly singers where a lot of it was about kind of slurring almost, using the voice yeah. as an instrument. And, and that's fine if you're Billie Holiday. Um, I don't think it works that well if you're speaking to a pop audience, um, 
where we have the X Factor telling us that you know you have to be making the song your own and singing with passion and and all that then becomes mixed in with this idea of being Billie Holiday and suddenly you can't hear anything because they're just kind of elongating all their words and as as you pointed out not actually opening and shutting their mouths <laughs> yeah. it's just gone one long way <laughs> just yeah, making yeah, their lower lips yeah. wobble I was thinking of this uh, this morning that um, a classic case of this is. Uh, if you listen to Dolly Parton's original version of I Will Always Love You, mm. you know what it's about. <laughs> it's very clear. You know, she delivers the plot. If you listen to is it Whitney Houston's version yeah. of I Will Always Love You, it makes no sense at all. It, there's no wah, there's no la. <laughs> anywhere. It's just, ah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's kind of, it's as if she's David sort of... sings Whitney Houston. <laughs> this is a first, isn't it? Uh, yeah. It's as if she's, she thinks that the audience sort of have a crawler caption of subtitles going, going past and that they can supply all that detail. Yeah. You know, you, you don't need that. Her job is to kind of... It's to sort of the whole point of the performance is to, is to say, you know that song? Well, I can sing the hell out of it. But you know it already, don't you? You know what I mean? You <laughs> I know, was, mine's, I was listening to, um, mine's a kind of footnote. Yeah. You know what I mean? I was listening to Joss Stone this morning doing a Nat King Cole song, Love, which is made up almost entirely of one-syllable words. It's... And each of those one-syllable words she's given three syllables to. Yes. I don't understand it. Well, that's the style, isn't it? Give me an example. I couldn't put it. I was trying to get you to sing it. Dave can add it to his Whitney Houston so I was I was asking this morning on Twitter if anybody had any contributions to this debate, and various people came through. And Simon Mayo actually said, "If you're doing something about about enunciation, you know, in pop music, you've got to have Elton John in there, okay?" And so this is we're going to try we're going to try a live experiment here, okay? This is high risk. I got queued up on Spotify on my iPad a classic Elton John tune, and I'm going to try and play it. I'm going to stop at the each, end of each line and we'll, see if we'll anybody what he's can tell me what he's, oh, what he's like actually singing. Are you ready? Uh, You're familiar with this thing? This is a... Yeah. Sacrifice. Sorry, just forgive us. Here, there we go. Here we go. Over it. It's a human something. It's a human side. It's my mother's son. <laughs> when things go wrong. You see, I think that's quite easy. That's yeah. when things mm. go wrong, isn't when it? Things yeah. go wrong, I should say. When the scent of her lager. the scent of her lager. <laughs> what kind of lager is she drinking? <laughs> that's ridiculous. Well, the scent of her lingers, isn't it? Oh, right. Oh, yes. oh, oh, the oh, her lingers. Oh, oh, the scent of her lingers. I when they're, when they're letting petrol go That's from 30,000 feet prior to an emergency landing, it's a sense of All right, are you ready? No? Oh, well, I think I know it's Temptation yeah. Strong, oh, which is boring here, yeah, but... Into the boundary. The, into the, into the fountain. I thought it was Boundary. Boundary, oh, yeah. Okay. I thought Foundry. Okay. It's the, the Sheffield song. It's the Foundry. It's a pub just past it's the post office. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I didn't get that at all. No. It's, it's <laughs> married life, married man, I don't know. Right, you ready? Next bit. Sweet to see comes calling. Sweet to see comes calling? 
doesn't I, make any sense. I was going to say sweet deceit comes Deceit, from. Yeah, yeah, probably. Yeah, okay. very poetic. Now... That's so old and John. Negativity live. <laughs> right, that's not even live. How can negativity live? And God's sake. Oh, but I, presumably you have to take up the sense of this with Bernie Taupin, don't we, really? It's not if, it's, if negativity's lying, maybe it's being positive. OK, well, that Ooh, could be true. Cool. Are you ready? Cold, cold heart. Cold, cold heart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Heart done by Q. Heart done by Q? I just don't know. Something's left embedded, baby. Something's left embedded, baby? <laughs> Gosh. Something's in leather, baby? <laughs> leather That's a leather, baby. Leather bed, baby. Are we getting towards the chorus now? Just passing through. Passing through. Passing yeah, through, right? Okay Just a simple word, not the way you sing it, Elton. Just a simple word. Simple word. Two hearts yeah. living. Into separate worlds. Separate o worlds. Okay. <laughs> See, and, uh, it, and well, so it goes on. Oversyllabic. But, uh, it's oversyllabic. <laughs> <laughs> just too many syllables, Elton. Yeah, it's just... And I wonder if this is something to do, you know, going back to my Dolly Parton, Whitney Houston point that he doesn't write the words. Therefore, mm. if he's provided with the words... Exactly that. And we know that, you know, Elton does record in a way that <clears> hardly <throat> anybody else does, doesn't he? You know, that he, he records absolutely all the time, doesn't he? You know, and Bernie sends him... Does he still work with Bernie yes, Johnson? he does. I mean, this is the same relationship as between Nicky Wire and... Uh, and James uh, Dean Bradfield. James Dean Bradfield, isn't it? Well, they just, he just send, life. He like sends it. him... He's an Unbelievable. Sends him the words, and Elton is there in a studio in Munich or wherever he happens to be with a 40-piece orchestra, and you've got to knock out three tunes in four hours or something. And he can apparently do it... But I would have thought he just looks at the words and they're, they're just a kind of guide to, to the tune. And very much like us, of course, he's looking at those words for the first time. <laughs> so, so we're in the same boat, really, aren't so, we? So he's, <laughs> he's probably not thinking about the sense of them at all. No. They're just, they're, you know, they're, mm. they're a framework to hang his vocal style on. Completely. Maybe. And I suppose that's the kind of X factor, you know, that's the whole drift of pop music, isn't it? Yeah. Well, he's not, also not helped by that terrible production. I mean, as an 80s tune, isn't it? Or early 90s. Swathed in reverb, the sibilance there is what is stopping us from hearing what he's saying because he's every time he says an S sound or a T sound, there's this dreadful reverb yes. everywhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean, that luckily that kind of production style is dead and buried now, and there's no reverb on vocals anymore. If you hear a pop song, it's crystal clear and compressed to buggery. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> It's compressed the buggery or no, compressed no the fuck? Don't get all technical with us. Compress the buggery button. I'm like, here's a big, huge, huge console with a big little button. Yeah, you buggery. probably know all about this stuff. Turn the buggery like, fader up. I was fascinated by this. People talk me about, tell me about a, a dark, mythical prince of popular music nowadays, Spike Stent, hmm. who, can, who can master anything to yeah. make it sound... You know, so intense and going through walls. Yeah, and and he's the kind of person who does this, isn't he? Yeah, actually cranks up the signal. Oh well, I mean, it's kind of there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, people doing this now. Unfortunately, everything is too compressed, right? Especially in pop, right? I mean, uh, you know, another reason why we get tired of 
of listening to those kinds of singers is because it's tiring on the ears to hear yes. that non-dynamic vocal. Nothing, nothing changes all on one level the whole time, which is loud. It's yeah. the level that it's on. Gosh, so where do you stand on Rufus Wainwright then? Most, most intense and uh, over melodramatic. Well, I was actually going to mention Rufus Wainwright in the column because he, I think, is massively guilty of not enunciating properly. And then I listened to some of his records and couldn't really... I thought I'd get in trouble for that because it's not really a hugely big claim. But, I mean, for me, he just... He, he's very guilty of elongating everything and not... Opening his mouth properly, he kind of sings like yeah. 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 <laughs> the greatest <laughs> enunciator, I think, Neil Tennant of very good. Boys. Mm. Who not only does he um, speak every syllable uh, as clearly as possible, but he sings in a very deliberately, very proudly English accent. Yeah, he won't sing Americanisms. He won't say dance, which I think he probably would do actually because he's from the north. But, but <laughs> that's a bad example. <laughs> it depends if he's trying. Yeah, to but, but he does actually sing in a very English. No, well, I, I, I same with Colin Blunston. I think. I mean, she's not there. He says not, not, nod, which yeah. is what yes. you would say. I tell you who I do yeah. think is is actually even better than she Neil Tennant. <laughs> and I went to see, I went to see him play live with a you know loudish rock band. And I to, it sounds like a, such an old-fashioned thing to say, but it's like my mother used to say when she used to come and see me in school. Was plays. there a loudish rock band, David? Who <laughs> you poor thing? Well, my mother used to come and see me in school plays, and you know, afterwards, your mother is always expected to say something vaguely encouraging, and she always used to say, "I could hear every word you said." <laughs> and and listen, that's fine. That's a, that's a continuation of our theme of uh, things to say when you don't want to upset someone. Well, yeah, you've done it again. You've done it. Again. <laughs> What could Only I say? you, David, could give it a performance <laughs> like that. But anyway, <laughs> the point about this singer, and I did find myself saying on the way home, you could hear every word he sang, was Colin Malloy of the Decembrists. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's fantastic. Yeah. But Fantastically he takes great pride clear. in the literary nature. I know, but, you know, he sings with immense control and power when, when it's called upon. But you could, if you were hearing those songs for the first time, you would know what they were about. Whereas most performances, you wouldn't. It sort of expects. And, and also, it expects that you will have heard them 50 times before you come along. So they sort of don't have to spell it out for you. Mm. You know what I mean? You've come to see them do the kind of huge, yeah. over-the-top bravura version of it. I've got various other things from, uh, from The Massive on this, on this subject. Um, Ed Mahan, I think I've got that right, who wants to know what accent does the singer from The Cooks use? Because he sounds like he's eating toffee. Kooks. The kooks. Oh, the kooks. Sorry. No, I mean, <laughs> oh, the kooks. Sorry, Dave. Some of the kooks. Yeah, sorry, all right. The kooks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dear, oh, sorry about Sounds it. like you're eating toffee. <laughs> yeah, because he's, the... he's, a, he's a public schoolboy. Went to school with Katie Melua, who sings <laughs> lovely, um, you know, yes. like a posh public schoolgirl. He sings like a Liverpudlian. Right. And he's not from Liverpool. I mean, have you heard the kooks? Yes. Yeah. But uh, I can't call it to mind. It sounds true. like uh, Lee Mavers. Right, um, OK. He's... He's he, he went to school with Katie Melia. How does this amazing. happen? That's fantastic. Russ Litton says that Joe Strummer sounds like he's got a mouth full of nails. I think that's true. That's very true. I mean, you know, yeah. there, there is no... Gargling with gravel. <laughs> there, is, <laughs> there is just the... You, know, you can just hear the phlegm at the back of his throat, can't you, really? So You don't hear the tongue and the lips at all. Someone described I think, as being, being force-fed a Volkswagen. <laughs> it's like a cartoon. You've got a car stuck in your throat. <laughs> and Sukio says, heartbeat by the sc- about scouting for girls. Is it that hard to pronounce the letter T? But you see, you can... Uh, well, this is the problem. It's interesting you're talking about singers who sing in an English accent, which is unusual. You don't have that many. And I think, I can't back this up with any fact, 
I'm afraid. But um, I think it's technically easier to sing in an American accent. Just to stay in tune and sing powerfully is easier if you're singing like an American. If you Why sing, you stay in tune? Can't we stay in tune? Well, I just, be just the because of the because of I guess because of the idiom people. that pop is in is generally Americanized. Most people would it's sing like that. Slurred, isn't yeah. It? Yeah. yeah, yeah, it is. And if you're trying to be clipped in English and say your T's, it's yes. If you're going to listen, yeah, that's another true. thing. Noel to, Coward or Jesse Matthews, you've got to be whatever, English pre yeah. rock yes, and roll singers. It's very clipped. Mm. It's it's kind of clever, isn't it? Yeah, it trips along. You're less relaxed, I think. Yes, it's great. It's yeah, formal. Less relaxing, yeah. but not yeah. Whereas yeah. American, when we talk about them. American singing, what we're generally talking about is kind of African American singing, isn't it? Because that's such a huge influence on the whole of pop music. Most English of the lot actually were people like Bert Yanch. Bert Yanch would not sing the word baby. He could not bring himself to say, he could sing darling or girl, but he couldn't sing baby because he felt that was just a bridge too far. And I can sort of understand that if you're very, very English. You would never use that expression colloquially, probably, if you were very, very English. Babies are really odd. I was thinking about this yeah. recently because, um, you know, you could when when sort of the Beatles first started singing, you know, "Baby, it's you" and so forth. It was kind of a familiar term of endearment. That's a long time ago. Yeah. Well, it isn't anymore, is it? No. You know what I mean? But does that it play as uniquely American? Uh, but is it uniquely American? Pretty much. It's a kind of odd endearment, isn't it? But it's once people nowadays song, talk about babe, accepted. don't they? Yeah. Girls address each other as babe. Yeah. Which never happened before. And, but it's just extraordinary what a kind of uh, basic element it is yeah, in it pop is. music. And you, you don't you don't think about it at all. You don't uh, you don't investigate it at all. So um, well, that's um, you know that's um, that's them told. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to the Word Podcast. It's not supposed to be professional. So, I mean, you know, we were talking about this the other day that said that uh, if you were listening to the word podcast and you found yourself sitting opposite uh, somebody who's on it, you had to go to them and... I claim my ten pounds. claim your ten pounds. <laughs> somebody saw you yesterday, but you skipped off the, off the train too they quickly did. for them. Somebody I was getting on the 214. Uh, oh, uh, yeah, coming up the Pentagon. You're moving too fast. I know. Trying I was, to escape people who are trying to claim he, their he ten pounds. the fact that he'd seen me on the bus yeah. while listening to me. What an awful... awful the worst so, thing is, had he taken the headphones off, he was carried on. Yeah, absolutely. So the office, the office still open, isn't it? <laughs> oh, you're listening <laughs> to the podcast, and you catch Fraser, myself, or Mark, or Christian Ward this week. Um, actually, in the street, you, you, you're allowed to go up to them. This includes you, Christian, really? and claim ten pounds. Yeah, yeah. Crikey! <laughs> That's so, fair enough. So this week, you've seen the passing of Liz Taylor. And Pinetop Perkins. Pinetop Perkins, who I interviewed. And you had personal contact with Pinetop Perkins. I did. Tell us about Pinetop. Well, Pinetop Perkins, actually, I, I met him twice. I met him... Um, uh, Tell us who he was. Well, he was Muddy Waters' piano player for a very, very long time. And in fact, was a, a session, originally a session guitar player. We'll come to this actually later. And became a piano player, I think, in the, in the probably late 30s. And I first met him when I was at New Musical Express in 1979. And Nick Kent was going to interview Muddy Waters backstage at the... Uh, Alley Pally. Alley Pally. Were you at that? You're probably there. And it was Chuck Berry. Um, it was um, Muddy Waters. It was uh, uh, Johnny Winter. Do you remember? It was an amazing lineup actually. 
And I managed to get backstage with Nick. So I was, Nick was a great hero of mine. I used to watch Nick to see if I could pick up tips about how to be a rock journalist. I have to say, and I don't think Nick's listening, he wouldn't mind he, 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 me saying this even if he was, but he probably wasn't the best person to follow, actually, because, do you know what? He never had a fucking tape record. <laughs> I used to, he used to, sorry, Nick. He, he used to write on cereal packets. unbelievable. It? And so I wanted to meet Muddy Waters, I wanted to meet Pantop Packets, and eventually a black cab drove into the backstage area containing the London silhouettes. London cab. A l- black London cab <laughs> containing the silhouettes of Perkins yes. and Muddy Waters. Where are you going, I sir? Being I'm so going down excited. to Brownsville. I'm going down to Brownsville. <laughs> Sorry, I'm riding by my side. River. Yeah, I'm going to the crossroads. You can drop me off there. <laughs> I'll make up my mind which way I'm going. <laughs> so, anyway, me age, whatever it was, I can't remember now, I don't know, 23 or something, the most exciting thing in the world would see Muddy Waters and Pine Top Pockets get out of a black cab backstage. And I was just so thrilled. And uh, I remember Perkins going up the ramp onto the stage and they started, uh, I'm a man, or it was, and they started the riff. And Nick was still in the car talking to to Muddy Waters. I could see Nick just, he used to wave his arms around, you know, and it seemed to be the interview was going very well because he wasn't recording it, <laughs> you know. And everyone who ever spoke sounded just like Nick Kent, really, whether they were Muddy Waters <laughs> or Andy Parsons. That's a treat to look out for readers. <laughs> always used the same intonation. <laughs> yeah. And they must have been on stage for a full time. I'd love to see their expression. Think, what the hell is Muddy Waters? Muddy Waters is still larging it in the back of his black He's still arguing with the cab driver. With probably the refusing to pay. Exactly, that's right. And not being helped out by Nick Kent. Anyway, out he came. And that was the first time I met him. But I had fish and chips with uh, Pine Top Perkins. We, we'd been doing word for about maybe around 10 or 15 issues. And he was in town. And I decided to go meet him because I was so thrilled. And he was actually a paltry 93 then, I think. So, well, we can date it. It was four years ago. And I had fish and chips with him. He was an absolutely unbelievable man because he wanted a, fish and chips, didn't he? He wanted fish and chips. We went to a fabulous fish and chip place. I forgot the name of it now. In Listen Grove, Grove, which I don't think is there anymore. No, it's not. It's closed down. It was abs- It was just so wonderful with this um, terrific two girls who were looking after him, a PR girls with him. Of course, he was flirting furiously. He's got really <laughs> handsome girls in their mid forties, you know, and he was just chatting them up, and they were sort of indulging him and sort of patting his hand and saying, eat your fish and chips, love. (laughs) And he spoke in the thickest patois that was almost impenetrable, actually, even for members of his own crew. And most of his stories were about what first story he told me was that he wasn't a piano player, which he was a guitarist. This was a characteristic of his entire life, was having arguments involving women, uh, which, if I remember rightly, was how Robert Johnson, in fact, uh, met his maker. That he had, poison whiskey. He was given a bottle of poison whiskey by someone with whom, whose wife he had just slept. <laughs> his baby he'd done his gone. His baby, <laughs> exactly, yeah. So uh, that happened to, to Pintop. And Pintop was stabbed in the tendons in his uh, left hand, which uh, rendered it impossible for someone to play the guitar, but still play the piano. <laughs> so that's, uh, yeah, he was the most absolutely extraordinary man, incredibly energetic. And I was thinking, he's 93, pretty good going and he died when he was 97 I think was he 97? 97 phenomenal it's good in what a great man and probably apart from BB King virtually the last of that generation well BB King well, is not we had this, not that we had this debate the, in the yeah. office the other day I said is that the last of the blues men but of course I'd forgotten BB King is you know. who is slightly younger of he's course. of a younger yeah. generation yeah. Uh, although BB King did pick cotton he picked cotton and as a teenager that's true which is pretty Extraordinary. Extraordinary. Yes. Let's be honest. Anybody you ever picked cotton, Fraser? Yeah, never. Never been called upon Christian Dillon. Holiday job, never picked cotton. No, 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 no. Not really. No, no. But Fraser made a good point that Honey Boy Edwards is, is still around, uh, uh, oldish, late 80s, I think, and he is actually making a living 
uh, by appearing, uh, playing a few Robert Johnson songs and playing a few of his own, but basically talking about the fact that he is one of the only surviving people who actually ever played on stage with Johnson when he was very young. Johnson was in his 30s. Yeah. So, so he's, tra- he's, made, he's trading on the fact that he actually played with a great band. There's also that generation of fat possum blues artists, the people like T-Model Ford, oh, T-Model who were the same age but never got discovered until they were in their 80s. Yeah, oh, yeah, 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 where they kind of restarted. Absolutely. Yeah, loads of those guys. Yeah. So BB King's still still going strong. He retired about five years ago and then thought, sod this, I'll yeah. start again. Yeah. And so he now plays sitting down, but still plays. Because it's just Fair in the enough. blood, those guys. Yeah. They can't what sit at home. They're not sitting at home watching the television. Sit and watch reruns else. of Cheers. No, no. no. So, but this week also seen the person, Liz Taylor. Liz Taylor. And uh, I'm sorry, because I recently I've got... Just, just, Try your the theory story. out on Christian. Taylor's okay. a great theory. I've got a theory. The great screen beauties of, let's say, the 50s, and Liz Taylor is a classic example of that, and Grace Kelly would be another one, and Audrey Hepburn would be another one, and Marilyn Monroe would be another one. That'll do. Are the great, were the great beauties, great screen beauties of the 50s, more beautiful than the great screen beauties of today? You know, and let's take a representative sample of great screen beauties of today. Angelina Jolie and... Keira Knightley. Keira Knightley. Scarlett Johansson, anyway, um, Halle Berry. Okay, right. Were they, were they more beautiful those women in those days than they are today? No. I better warn you. I better warn you. Yeah, yes, good. <laughs> I'm going to tell you the answer. If you don't agree with him, you're going to be in trouble. <laughs> the answer is no. They weren't. The people in the past were better looking. Anyway. <laughs> so you don't think they were. Well, I think it's about it's about access and the way that they're photographed. I mean, if you want to look at a picture of Angelina Jolie today, you can probably do that every day for the rest of your life, see a different picture of her on the internet or in a magazine, and she's being photographed by a high-end digital camera or she's been airbrushed out of all recognition. So, in comparison, the amount of photographs of Elizabeth Taylor, there's probably not that many, really, compared to Angelina Jolie. Possibly. I wouldn't have thought. And what you're seeing is, you're literally seeing a rose-tinted view of somebody because they're not photographed in the way that they're, they're photographed. They weren't even shot on film in the way that they're shot on film now. So I think it's a case of there's a slight softeningness about all these women in the past. Right. Uh, I don't know if... I mean, I've never met a Hollywood starlet in the flesh either, <laughs> from either that era or, or now... But I imagine in the flesh, they're all completely different looking. It's just a case of, in those days, it was a bit softer. Yeah, and also, they're different, point. they're different different, bodies, you know. I mean, nobody looks like that anymore because you're not allowed to look like that anymore. You're not allowed to look like Elizabeth Taylor and be a Hollywood starlet. You're supposed to look like Kieran Knight. Because you're way too much. Yeah. yeah. As that I said, is, that in, that, is a big issue. In, the, in that model show, if you've been it's watching that. I have met... They oh, want, I love they that want boys. Show. They want boys with pretty faces, <laughs> uh, yeah. which is not Elizabeth Taylor. Uh. So I don't with know. the old stars, you never saw them looking anything other than glamorous. <coughs> Do you know what? Not entirely. I, I had a, I had an argument with somebody about this this week. They said that you know, you know, nowadays, you know, Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie, every every movement is photographed by Paps and so forth, and that wasn't the case fifty years ago. It was when Liz. I remember picking up the Sunday Express when Liz Taylor and, and Richard Burton were shooting Cleopatra in Rome or whatever they were doing it. And it was suddenly, it was a huge story. And you pick up the paper every day there was a picture of them. 
coming out of a nightclub or getting out of a cab or getting involved in a punch-up or whatever. They were absolutely ubiquitous. But in terms of the films they made, weren't they generally in those films to, to portray that glamorous thing? It, to, if Elizabeth Taylor today would be doing films which showed us looking horrible. Well, to be fair, no, that's almost the trick, isn't it? I mean, but she appeared in, you know, her biggest success probably is Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, where she plays a blousy, you know, 50-year-old yeah. alcoholic. But still, you're thinking... That's Liz Taylor but, playing no, a blousy fifty-year-old no, there's, there's a fundamental difference, I think, which is that nowadays you are invited to identify and relate uh, with and to uh, actresses on on a, on a level that involves their ability to be an act to act. If that makes sense. Yeah, which is all bollocks. Which you're, you know, when Kira Knightley, who I have to, say, it seems disrespectful to say I, that she, I find it very, very difficult to. I, I, it's very difficult to fancy Kira Knightley. Mm. It just is. She's just a fabulous mannequin, but you just don't really want. You don't. You mm. simply do not fancy her. And but you are invited to admire her acting abilities. And the structure of those old films was very much that these people made a big entry. <coughs> And you knew that you were meant to be looking at. In fact, we were talking about this the other day. There's a film, and it's not obviously it's not a great film. It's The Mask, but that is our first moment that we get to meet Cameron Diaz, and they make such a meal of it. It's brilliant. And there's a scene in the uh, marbled kind of forecourt of a, of a bank, I think. And the door opens, and there she is, kind of with the backlight behind her in a scarlet dress, and she walks. And it must slit skirt. It lasts about forty-five seconds. <laughs> this thing of her walks the slit skirt. She is. That's really she enough. is well spotted. <laughs> and she walks up this thing, and as, uh, to, to a music, it sounds a little bit like Big Spender. Wow, you know, wow, it's wow, a wow, yeah, bow now. It's a lousy trombone. Yeah, big old trombones parping away. You know, <laughs> and people, uh, you know, uh, I think actually, you know, sort of cut in fashion, their, their eyes kind of fall out of their sockets, you know. Yeah, yeah. And you know you, what they're saying is, I tell you what, this girl is fantastic to look at, and 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 now even the great lookers aren't brought in at that dramatic moment where you're meant to sit back and admire them. They're brought in as an actor, and you're meant to be identified with. Well, the they're character. supposed to. Ideally, nowadays they like to be photographed in vests, looking dirty as if they've just you know fixed a big end on a car. Yes, yes, you know, because they can't mechanic. be seen to be. Gorgeous actresses, yeah. even though they spend every waking moment thinking about how to be gorgeous actresses in order to get you know, contracts with perfume companies, which is how they make their money. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's true. It's controversial talk it's from David Hepworth. It's true. Yeah. Even Liz Taylor did it, you know, last part she of did. her life, didn't she? She yeah. was the face of whatever perfume it was. I want to just tell you a story, because uh, I, I read uh, the terrific book out called Furious Love. Liz Taylor and Richard Burton, and it's a real pot boiler. It's a real cuttings job. It just recounts their extraordinary affairs and marriages and so forth. And I, I read it enthralled to be reminded of, you know, they were so much bigger than life, these people, you know. They make Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie and these people look as if they're, they're not trying at all. Because yeah. these people live these incredibly extravagant lives, completely in the public eye. And they did something which hardly anybody does anymore, which is they drank like fish. Yeah. You know, absolutely. You know, they've been making what a movie. What drink throughout a... He would, he would, when, he, when, he, when he played Hamlet on the London stage, which I say is a pretty high pressure. It's high wire, yeah. you know. But the world's press are there. During the evening, from curtain up to curtain down, stage full of bodies. Can of Cronenberg? More, more no, than no, that. No, no, Two no. cans. <laughs> a bottle of glossy Merlot. 
one bottle of scotch, <laughs> a bottle of scotch, in the course of a performance. You know, so he kind of nip off, and, you know, Rosencrantz would hand him his, you know, bottle of Johnny Walker Red or whatever, and he goes, glug, glug. Then back on into the next scene. It's amazing he didn't stab anybody, isn't it? You know, how could people function while doing that? And the Burtons, when, when they were making movies, they would turn up at the set. They you know, during makeup, you know, they, they'd have extraordinary makeup, you know, for Cleopatra or whatever. You makeup that starts at six in the morning. You know, they they book them in really early, and they'd be drinking. She's wild, already having a bloody Mary for breakfast. Yeah. Yes, well, Telling hilarious anecdotes. Yes. Yeah. So you can imagine how stoucious anybody was by three o'clock in the afternoon. But anyway, the story... It's a lovely the... idea that when you look back on those films, though, you have to imagine that she probably was. <laughs> yes. like, like Marilyn Monroe. You look at Marilyn Monroe. She's, she's, I, I now always think, she's stoned out of her head. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely arsehole. <laughs> <laughs> but the story is that when they were in London filming something, I can't remember what it was, probably the VIPs, um, they, had, they had two yachts. They had one yacht out in the med or something and she she had a collection of pets you know fluffy air dogs and so forth that she liked to be accompanied by everywhere she went those were in the days when britain had very strict quarantine regulations and so in order not to be parted from these dogs they rented another yacht and parked it at st catherine's dock where it was full of little dogs and cats. And Follow that, Mariah so. Carey. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so she could just pop down. Pop so down a, and see. There's a, there's a whole baying Dalmatian plantation on a, kind of, on a boat. <laughs> That's so good. So, Liz Taylor, we salute you. The Word Podcast. Prime cuts of popular culture served fresh each week. We've all done our little websites, haven't we, Fraser? Yes. We've all done those little fun things. Yep. Christian's gone a bit further. Do you know what he's got on his website? What's he done? He's made a documentary. He's made a little documentary. It's only 15 minutes long, but I sound watched it enthralled. It's very good. Thank and, you. And it's, <laughs> it's about... Well, explain it. Uh, well, it's about the influence of English comedy, particular brand of English comedy, on the, the pop artists of this country. Um, from the Beatles to Pet Shop Boys to Arctic Monkeys, it seemed to me that all the the kind of really successful bands in this, this country produces are all humorous and not in that kind of, oh, they write comedy songs, bonzo, dog, doodah band kind of way, but in a kind of influenced by comedians and comics from the goons to, to Peter Cook and, uh, and on. And it seems to be that's what those bands strike a chord with the British public for some reason, whether it's the Arctic Monkeys, who are a funny band... Um, or the Beatles, who were also a funny band. We so seem which, to be. Which, let me stop you. Which comedians influenced the Arctic Monkeys? Do you think? Well, I think what the Arctic Monkeys are drawing on is the same thing that Jarvis Cocker is drawing on, and the same thing that Morrissey was drawing on, which is a very kind of specific nor- northern wit. Yeah. I'm not sure that they would say that they are directly influenced yes. by a particular comedian. You mean there's just humour in the yeah, way? Yeah. Yeah. And I think it it seeps into the into Alex Turner's lyrics. I mean, he is writing comedy sketches. As songs, really. Yeah. If you listen, or if you if you if you listen to the lyrics, he's a he's an articulate singer. He's one of he's one of the only new articulate singers. Yes, I say. You really can actually really you can actually yeah. hear what he's saying. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I just I thought well, this would make an interesting documentary, and I didn't want to sit in commissioning rooms no, for, for ten years. I better go and have a lot of lunch for ten years <laughs> yeah. and, and then see the idea really? pinched or disappeared. You don't do that. You just <laughs> so made you it yourself. Footage off YouTube, yeah. just a microphone in the, in the corner of the bedroom. Yeah. 
I mean, obviously, the, the idea was perhaps to use it as a showreel. To, I mean, I've been talking to Word's very own David Quantic about it because um, he has he has similar ideas. Um, so something might might come of it, um, or, or a book. You know, I think there's a, there's a book's worth of material there. I think, but um, uh, yeah, and I just you know I love the Goons, and obviously I'm a massive Beatles fan, and it seemed to me very peculiar that no one had kind of pointed out that, that line, psychedelia, psychedelia happened because of because of the goons yeah it's true lewis carroll you make yeah. it, you made that point it was very persuasive on your on your film actually yeah. and it's really clear it's one of those things that mark and i often talk about this that the, the the further away you get from the beatles the clearer the story becomes you know because you see it as a kind of social phenomenon mm their relationships and you know the influence and so forth and you really can so clearly see that between the goons and the beatles and john lennon's painted in the works and all that kind they, of but the, and the, the, the goons for all four of them was an incredibly bonding thing wasn't it and and of course famously one of the reasons they wanted to work with george martin who produced those records yeah, yeah. Records. but on your documentary which i'm calling a documentary in fact yes. uh, <laughs> dignified with that it's there's a, a fantastic bit of footage of the goons recording you know and mm. it's marvelous to see with a live live audience you know they've got the cans on and then they're just pissing around on stage aren't they you yeah. know you know and Seacombe was holding forth and, and uh, milligan and sellers yeah. running around making funny faces behind his back so it's fantastic it's, fantastic. it's so it's so there's a piece actually in the next edition of um word not out for a bit when's the next one out? 14th or something isn't it yeah but coming next thursday of the month just finishing it now and it's the um it's about beyond the fringe and uh, it, they found these uh, warm-up show uh, before their London debut, which I think was in May 1961. They were then playing the Cambridge Arts Centre two days beforehand, and it, it, there's nine sketches in there which they dumped or reworked for the big London debut, you know. And it's just phenomenal to hear this stuff. It's so revolutionary. Yeah. Because we really forget that... It, well, this is off the point of your... Uh, film I, I, I appreciate but we forget that before these people it was funny walks slapstick it was where's my washboard wasn't it it was music hall yeah. and you know, I did, you do these kind of elliptical psychedelic routines about uh, fantasies and uh, you know yeah, but it's still it's grounded in very similar things a similar structure to the earlier things like it, it Mar and so forth which was a yeah. repetition of Catchphrases, you know, we do this gag at a certain oh, yeah, point, sure. you know, and it's a thing that's gone right through to Little Britain, isn't it? It's a very, it's a very Little British Britain thing. Very based on that, but the idea you just cast four characters and throw them into a situation—that kind of sketch thing—but sketch yeah. with a real twist to it. So that's that's uh, Christian's documentary, which. Uh, Will be entered, no doubt, in major festivals around the world. <laughs> if um, I can get the rights to all the footage, oh, yeah, I thought you cleared everything. That's one of the advantages oh, about sure. doing all the interviews. Yeah. <laughs> a few questions from the massive. Um, Cheesy Weasel says the Strokes have criticised their own new album in interviews. If they're that unhappy with it, why release it? Any thoughts? They're probably contractually obliged to release it. I would imagine. Yeah, Strokes well, why have they criticised it? I don't know. Okay. That's what Cheesy Weasel says. But uh, I suppose to criticise it is a, is a refreshing change from people going, do you know, I think it's the best thing we've ever done. See, I, Which I, 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 I rather, I, I, there's, there's two or three press officers who ring me up. I've known for a very long time. And they, if they're listening, I'll know who they are. I'm very fond of them. And they have this absolutely brilliant way of selling you things. Uh, and one of them will say, I've got the new um, uh, David Burnell. I personally think it's rubbish. <laughs> It, I think it's disappointing. I think he's let himself down. He's let everyone down. <laughs> Sounds awful. Songs don't mean anything. Cobbled together. But yeah, I don't know. Maybe. And you find it so good. 
And say, Mick, Mick. That's giving it away. Mick, <laughs> Mick Houghton, you say. It's not, it's not, it's, not, it's actually quite, we just talk about that. I mean, I, I think it's quite good. How dare you? This is David Byrne, the guy who eventually found himself writing a thing saying this is a work of unparalleled genius. So maybe no, using the Houghton technique. It's true. Yeah. Yeah, the old grizzly PRs, usually, they, they don't rave about things. No, too. never. Because they're not to impress. They know that you you've heard all of them. You've yeah. heard all of that yeah. before. So you know, uh, we were talking about old music papers a couple of weeks ago. Uh, anybody remember Street Life? <coughs> says Halav. I remember Street Life. You don't. You're far too young, Christian. No. You're far too Mick young. Mick Houghton was their main uh, writer. Street, street Life was uh, had had one thing in common with some very successful British publications. It was fortnightly. Oh right, okay. It was fortnightly. Yeah. Um, which he has in common with some private eye. It was very, very, uh, very serious. I remember that. Yes, remember it was Neil kind of, of Rolling Stone. The late great Rob Partridge used to It was Rolling Stone like. It was, yeah. It? Gagarin, who always seems to uh, pop up with a question every week, and this is a good one. Why aren't more gigs during the day at the weekend? He says, I went to a Saturday lunchtime gig recently and it fitted the day perfectly. I think that's a I think thoroughly that's a sound brilliant idea. idea. Yeah, I think there should be more of that. I think bands should come round to your office at lunchtime during the week and play for you, so you don't actually have to go anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> They're so inconsiderate. Well, the last band who did that, to my knowledge, were the Spice Girls. When they did their original launch, you know, when they're trying to get them off the wall, you, you talk to people who were working at Smash Hits at the time or whatever. Smash Hits wouldn't let them in. They wouldn't. Let no, there was not. We had another magazine at Emac called Big Magazine. <laughs> And big magazine, just you know, they, they just weren't quite as snooty as smashes. Five girls in, in reception singing, they make an awful racket. Could you just let, just let them sing and send them away? And they went up there and smashes because famously did not let them in. So we're busy because we're working on <laughs> yeah. our take that supplement. You know. <laughs> <laughs> We've yes. got a member of China crisis in here, actually. <laughs> Whereas big welcomed them in without arms, yeah. didn't they? An interesting pop fact revealed in the next edition of Word magazine is that the managing director of Virgin at the time was trying to launch Spice Girls in a relationship with McDonald's Hamburgers. Yeah. Because McDonald's Hamburgers were just launching something called the Spice Burger. Oh. They were trying to combine these. They were very nearly launched on the back of Spice Burger Hamburgers. They dodged a bullet there, didn't they? <laughs> yeah, did. And finally, Rabty Dog. Uh, <laughs> it's amazing when you, you open the, the lines up for, for tweets. You get the oddest things. Rabty Dog says, "What's your worst budget airline experience?" Fraser, you have much travelled. Uh, I've never had a problem with budget airlines. No, neither have I. I, 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 I think Ryanair, which gets most criticism, has the best uh, landing on time record of any European. Uh, oh well, fine. Christian, you haven't had bad experiences with budget airline. Oh, I try not to fly. I don't like planes. EasyJet's uh, safety uh, uh, procedure, safety routine thing, I find difficult. They, well, because they do it in that kind of where EasyJet are all kind of a laugh. Oh, going, I don't like this that. is Tracy. This is Gerald. <laughs> right? You know, I don't like that because I like people to be really formal and really like, serious. If, this, if it goes, <laughs> you're in the sky. I don't want you choking around. No, you were up here to look after me. They're not cool. In the unlikely event the aeroplane will land on water, think does. I don't want you in charge. Well, anyway, Rab T Dog says that his worst budget airline experience was on Ryanair, where they served him whiskey in a sachet. Elizabeth Taylor would have sucked that guy. (laughs) (laughs) No problem. Just bitten the top off. (laughs) This podcast was brought to you by The Word. (laughs) 
If you've been affected by any of the issues in this podcast, go to wordmagazine.co.uk or apply at your newsagent.